Happy Sabbath, Ipsy, and to our friends online, we bless you and are so glad that you could be with us today. Did you know that Jesus is still the resurrection and the life? I wanted to go right into the message today, Luke 24, verse 50. You can remain seated as I read the end of the chapter from which our sermonic text is taken, Luke 24. I will finish the chapter starting with verse 50, Luke 24, verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God, I want to repeat that last phrase, and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we continue what the disciples started that day. We want to join them. We want to join the angels in heaven on this Sabbath praising and blessing you, God, for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. Well, Lord, now speak through me, and I pray, Lord, for my disappearance, and that Jesus spiritually would appear. I pray, Lord, that the power of the resurrection would be given to each one of your children, Lord, not just what happened, but that it would be applied today, that it would be accepted today for each person's drama, for each person's story, that no one would go home empty, that each person would get, Holy Spirit, what you have for them. This is your hour, and I'm praying it in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say amen and amen. Jesus shattered the lies of Satan. His resurrection lets us know that whatever accusations were hurled at him from the beginning have been addressed. Whatever lies were hurled at him were answered, and not just for him. Whoever is coming after you has a surprise too. I wanted to talk to you today about Jesus and his pure life. I wanted to talk to you about his resurrection and his meekness. I wanted to prepare a long message about the resurrection and his obedience. How I wish I could expound on the resurrection and his righteousness, his approachability, his excellence in teaching, his willingness to yield fully, his matchless compassion, his maturity, his submission, I can't stop talking about how wonderful Jesus is for letting me know that I am not alone, for laying down his life as a sacrifice. Just this morning, he woke me up, kept me going, and kept me from dangers seen and unseen. And I often ask this question, my wife knows what I ask, what? 
What can I offer in return for all that he has done for me? He called me. You see, I don't know what your testimony is, but I, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, deeply, deeply stained with sin, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard me and heard my pitiful cry and lifted me up from those waters. I am telling you, I should have been dead. That's not a metaphor. I should have been dead a long time ago. But God said no. Can I go on boasting about my Lord, about his intelligence, about his wisdom, about his justice, about his patience with me, about his concern, about his sense of humor in my life, about his provision, about his healing, about his blessing, about his goodness. He is very nice to me, Elder, about his friendship and all the entire time having this staggering power and giving me a choice about saying that he promised that in three days he would rebuild the temple about his truth. Oh, Jesus was never afraid of death. He was never buddy pals with death. You should know that Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is real. And if you loved somebody who died, I came by to remind you that as beautiful as they were in life, want to remind you just wait until you see what they are going to look like on resurrection morning. God is not through with us yet. Death has a final appointment with deity. And it seems like death has the last word, but you should know that whenever death and deity collide, that death loses big time. When sin and grace go at it toe to toe, grace always wins. When sin picked a fight with the undisputed champion of the cosmos, sin got in over its head. Somebody should have told Mr. Sin himself that grace can go the distance. Mercy has more wind than iniquity. Justice has more punch than evil. Jesus is still the title holder of the universe. Anybody who can get up from the second death on their own is worth following. That's what he said in John 10, 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Let me repeat that. The reason my father loves me, he said in John 17, is that I mm, lay down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. <sighs> no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. That's an awesome reason to follow him. I'll follow him anywhere. And what does it matter what he said? If he can whip the second death, I'm going with him. Oh, death thought it could corner Jesus on the cross. And I will admit as I read all of the stories that it looked bleak on Friday afternoon.
But Jesus knew that for you and for me, he had to keep going to fight the fight that you and I could never win. And who would have thought that grace would look like that? And no one could have imagined that grace would not be given grace. And that the cost of loving you would mean such a high sacrifice. Death had its way for a little while. But death is no friend of ours. Death is an enemy. Well, eventually the Bible says that he gave up his life. That he hung his head and died. I mean, he really died. Then he rested on Sabbath. It's not the first time he had done this. He had a custom of resting on Sabbath. Then early, early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, the command was given to a special angel the one who had brought the news over three decades earlier to a young woman named Mary. He said to her as he dimmed his light in front of her that she would give birth to a very special baby, a baby unlike any other baby, a baby that would be born that couldn't hold up its head but was an ancient being, a baby that was suckling his left thumb and at the same time holding the universe in his right hand. Oh, it was the angel whose very name means extreme strength of God. The command is given to the one whom humans can now see descending, materializing right in front of them. It is Gabriel. The hosts of darkness tremble. They know what's coming next. They don't want to look at his face. The light from God's glory comes before him, and once again, it's demon-tossing time. Tossed around like fresh salad, the poor guards standing in front of the tombs fall to the ground. Oh, they might be slightly concussed, but they are still conscious recording the entire thing. They were supposed to keep unauthorized people away from the stone. That's what they were asked to do. Poor soldiers, don't you know that a hundred mountains stockpiled on top of each other and or a brigade of demons could not stop Gabriel, much less the one who's inside the tomb. Son of God, he says, son of God. Oh, he drops so heavy on the planet that it causes an earthquake. Son of God, your father said, it's time for you to get up. And Jesus, just like that, wakes up. Come on, somebody. He told death, give me those keys. Death responds sarcastically over my dead body. Jesus said, that can be arranged. He warned somebody. Jesus warned somebody. Jesus warned somebody. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. We thought resurrection was a proposition. He's saying the resurrection is actually a person. And then 
went right back to work. This changes everything. For Satan, what a nightmare. And he doesn't sleep, so it must be a waking dream for him. He had his chance. For 33 years, he had his chance. His probation is up. You had your chance while Jesus was on earth to help him, to make him, to compel him to take the bait, to sin in his heart, maybe just a little bit, to be a commandment breaker, just a little bit, to maybe look at that young woman as she's walking back, just glance at her in your heart. No one didn't know you're doing it outside. Just a little bit. Just slide a little bit. Who's going to know? Who's going to be hurt by this? And truth is, are they really worth all that trouble? Are they worth the separation that's coming from your dad? You know that's approaching. You know good and well that they should just die. They are disobedient, backstabbing, malevolent, gossiping, fake, going into revival on Sabbath, and by Monday, they're back to their crooked ways. They're promiscuous. They have pornified neural pathways. They are insignificant humans. But Satan never said what his role was in the entire mess. Satan never said that he was the one who rebelled, kept rebelling, and leading people every moment into sin. He showed the video, but didn't show his part in the video. Didn't show either that what Jesus said is that now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't disagree with what Satan was saying. He said, my grace is sufficient for them. Come on, somebody. Satan was afraid that grace would be given to the human race. He knew what God is about, and he did not want Jesus to apply the thing, the only thing that would work, grace. So Satan lied as he lies today. He lied in heaven. He lied to the angels. He lied to Eve. He lied to Jesus in the desert. He lied to Judas. He lied to Peter. He'll lie to you. Mm -hmm. Do not think that because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you're immune from the lies of Satan. Don't get mad at me. I love you. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist too. But I have to tell you, this is one of the things I've discovered is that my brothers and sisters think, well, Pastor, we're Adventists, so we are beyond the lies of Satan, which, of course, is a lie. But the grace of the resurrection is that Satan's works are laid bare because of the empty tomb. You see, his lies are exposed even to fellow Christians. What lie? Pastor, someone's asking that question right now. You're talking about the Seventh-day Adventists gets li get lied to, but we're Sabbath keepers. So what are you saying that we get lied to? Well, a lie, for example, that entry into the kingdom is based on how we act. Mm-hmm. I've faced this before. I used to think that before. Church, it's high time that we as a people return to what we have always believed, meaning the Holy Bible, meaning Jesus Christ, and to expose and disbelieve Satan's horrific lies about behavior. 
you see, in my experience, it was emphasized as I was growing up, never taught openly, but it was emphasized that control over outward correctness was needed in order to be holy in such a way that the life of the believer was brought into guilt and shame. There seemed to be a mandate, not a biblical mandate, but perhaps a social mandate that sounded something like this. You should be ashamed of not doing the things you should be doing. And you should be ashamed of doing things you shouldn't be doing. And unless you quit doing those bad things and start doing the good things, then you and your children as well will be disciplined by the church. Maybe disfellowshipped from the communion of those who really love Jesus and you'll be lost when Jesus comes again. Mm -hmm. But doesn't the Bible say in Romans 3.28, so we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. Doesn't the Bible also say in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, as we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The grace of the resurrection, my brothers and sisters, is about salvation and not behavior modification. Oh, it's about salvation. Is what we have always needed was a savior. Our understanding of salvation, the most fundamental aspect about Christianity, casts a direct and dramatic implication upon every aspect of our lives. Since it is foundational, everything else will be aligned according to how it is placed, positioned, and understood. You see, scriptures emphasize that Jesus is the cornerstone of our salvation, Ephesians 2.20. That Jesus is the one of first importance, according to 1 Corinthians 15.3, by whom everything else is held together, says Colossians 1.17. Thus, if we get the resurrection, Jesus, wrong, Mm -hmm. Those are synonymous. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. We will invariably get salvation wrong. Indeed, just as an architect can't misjudge the foundation about the structure or of the structure, how much more can we not afford to do so with Jesus, the resurrection, and our salvation, which is eternally salvation and significant? Pastor, what do you mean the grace of the resurrection? is salvation. What does that mean? Sounds theological. I mean that salvation is not a formula to obey. It's a person to know and love, says John 17, 3. What do you mean I'm about salvation? And what does that have to do with me? I'm saying that salvation is not a personal feeling, a background, a promise, or morality to God. It's a position before God given to us as a gift from Jesus says Ephesians chapter 2. The essence of salvation is not behavioral change, but heart change, which in turn leads to a renewed behavior, yet this time with better motives, says 2 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 15. 
The benefits of salvation is not forced fruit. You better do this. But abiding in the vine where fruit grows naturally, says John chapter 15. Salvation is not an easier life, but a fuller one, says John 10.10. Salvation is not a license to sin. You better not believe that. Rather, it is a reorienting of our spiritual taste buds that makes taste, that makes sin taste bitter and righteousness sweet, says Romans chapter 6. Salvation is not just safety from being lost eternity, but an anticipation to spend eternity with the gracious God who rescued us in a new heaven and a new earth, says Revelation 21. Salvation does not just concern the human heart, but is a promise of redemption for all dimensions of life, cosmic, communal, and personal, says Colossians 1.20. Salvation is not a prayer to pray, but a person to praise, says Titus 3.5. Salvation is not a degree of your faith. How much faith do you have? But the object of our faith, says Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Salvation is not the pursuit of God, but God's pursuit of you, says John 3, 16 and 17. Salvation is not the transaction of our works for God's acceptance, but the gift of his grace for our shortcomings, says Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 9. Salvation is not a ladder to be climbed, but a cross to be born, says Luke 9, 23. Salvation is not a formula to be followed and adhered to, but a person to be followed and adored, says John 17, 3. It's not an emotion to be felt, but a truth to be embraced, says Acts 4, 12. It's not only a theoretical concept to cognitively acknowledge and accept, but a historical person with shoulders to wholeheartedly embrace and surrender to, says 1 Corinthians 15.6. Salvation is not a hand raised up, but a life laid down, says Matthew 16.24. Salvation is not a formula for making bad people good, but a power to make dead people Alive, says Galatians 2. Salvation is not the unlocking of your personal potential and strength, but connecting us to the one who has unlimited strength in spite of our weakness, says 1 Corinthians 12. Salvation is not that we have overcome the world, but that Jesus has, says John 14, 6. To conclude, Salvation is essentially not what we do for God, but about what God has done for us in Christ. That's what makes the gospel such good news, precisely because it is a work that God has accomplished for us that we could never have accomplished ourselves. Salvation is the exchange of our sin for Jesus' righteousness. Jesus took our position of penalty so we could have his position of favor 
says 1 Corinthians 5.21, the only thing we have ever contributed to our salvation was our sin. The rest is his glorious grace. Someone is saying, I don't know about that, Pastor. I think I contribute a lot. And I do love you. Right? I do love you. Um, you should know that the Bible does give us a picture to help us to understand right, what God is like. Because God has his own ways, right? His ways are not his way. His kingdom is not like anything that we have imagined. And if we want to understand the ways of God, Psalm 77, 13 says, The way, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. It also says, Who is so great a God as our God? The way that it's phrased in the original language is saying that there is no God as great. The question is, is implying that there is no God as great as God and that his way, the path direct, that the path to understanding God is in the sanctuary. That if we want to better understand what God is like, what his kingdom is like, how he expresses salvation, how are you going to deal with this sin problem that we should look to the sanctuary mm -hmm. to understand in symbols what is he trying to explain to us? And why on earth in Leviticus 1, when you get home, if you can read through it, if you can make it through Leviticus 1. If you, can, if you understand what the typology means and who the sacrificial system is, if you, God bless you, if you can make it through Leviticus 1, you're stronger than I am. Halfway through the chapter, you have to put it down because you're in tears. If you understand what's being said in Leviticus 1, and the, well, what part do I play in the salvation? Uh -huh. Go to the sanctuary. At Seventh-day Adventist, we understand that. And sometimes we'll get stuck in the, like, the furniture, right, the apartments, right, the garments of the high priest, right, the ephod, right? Do you understand the, in what part, okay, so what part did the, what part did the person play? In the sanctuary system, what did, what did we do? I'll tell you what we do. Go to Leviticus 1 and it'll explain to you what happened. If you sinned in, the, in this system that he puts in place, and he's explaining that we do have a role. It's not that we don't have a role. We do have a role in salvation. And it's saying that if you sinned as the head of the household, you would take a little lamb that you probably raised and did nothing wrong and is looking up to you because he wants to play Right? And you go to, right, to this system right, that's waiting for you. It is a way to remove, to get rid of, to exchange sin. He's explaining how it's done. And the sinner does play a role. There is work for us to do in salvation. What work? Mm -hmm. What work do we do? We take the lamb. We stand in line because there's other people in line. They are dealing with whether they have to, and then eventually they let you in. They let you into the outer courtyard with your lamb. You take your hands, you press your head on the lamb and begin to transfer all of your nuclear waste, all of your sin onto this lamb. A big guy like me leaning on a little lamb right there, it starts to die right there. You put your hands on the head of the lamb and begin to transfer 
get out whatever is inside of you and put it on the lamb. The priest approaches you with a knife and hands you the knife. Leviticus 1, you take the knife. You sacrifice the lamb that is a sanitized version, right? You know what that means, right? Right, you're killing the lamb. You're slitting the throat of the lamb. Right there, he drops down, right there. Right there, no complaints. Right there. Hmm. The priest lays his hands on you. and says, your sins are forgiven you, my child. You're overwhelmed by seeing this happen. And then, if you're not ready for the rest of Leviticus 1, anything dealing with the cutting of the lamb and hacking it into pieces is the person. Is the sinner. Aaron's, Aaron's sons don't do that. The sinner does. Anything dealing with divide, after you do that, you're not done. The lamb now has to be sliced and... Uh Uh-huh. Now, watch this. Now you can go. You're leaving redeemed, and that's all that you do in the sanctuary service. That's it. That's how you leave redeemed. And now the priest bends down, takes the blood, and goes to work. And I mean work. It is because of this the entire system works on the blood of, a sacrifice, of an innocent sacrificial victim, right? That didn't do anything wrong, didn't deserve anything wrong. We do play a part in our salvation. Aren't you glad for grace? Aren't you glad that Jesus did something with that blood? I want to share with you a story, a real story about the grace of God and the power of the resurrection, the grace of the resurrection, the unmasking of Satan and the power of the blood of the lamb. There were evangelistic meetings happening in in the inter-American division, a division where I grew up in. There was a man who started attending these meetings, a preacher was preaching the word of God with power. The man uh, came in, um, would come in night after night, but he was inebriated. He, he was drunk. And, and then one day, one day the preacher made an appeal and asked people if they wanted to accept Jesus as their savior, that, that they should come come to the front. And so people started uh, coming in uh, and coming down to the front and this man stumbling, drunk, stumbling over himself, smelling like rum and alcohol and filth, came down to the front with the other people, teetering, barely holding himself up. People as soon as he approached, people just started backing away from him. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. The message ended, the night followed, the night followed, and the, this time, this time, the preacher asked, if you didn't come last time, come this time. If you came yesterday, don't come up, right? 
This is a new appeal. And the man, the drunk man, came forward anyway. People saw him and they started kind of giggling. Well, this shows that the guy, he didn't understand last time, much less now, because you know, he's coming down again. They already said, if you came last night not to come, he came anyway. And was teetering again in bad shape. And the preacher said, if you, if you want to be baptized, if you believe in Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, I want you to, to raise your hand. And he raised his hand. He wanted to be baptized. Some people said amen. Not everyone said amen. It was time for the baptism. And the preacher was looking for this man. But he couldn't find him. He couldn't find him anywhere. He went into the hallways looking for him. And there he, he looked at someone clean, the white shirt and jeans. And he said, you look familiar. He said, wait a minute. Aren't you the, the man that came down? He said, yes, I am. He said, well, why have you not come? Why have you not come to the baptismal pool when you said that you would, that you would come? He said, Pastor, I want to be baptized. I, I do want to be baptized, but when I went to be baptized, some of the members said that because I hadn't been... that I hadn't been in church long enough that I couldn't. So... I wanted to go, so I stayed over here. Pastor just hung and says, and he said, I understand, you know, I understand, because I I haven't been living right for so long. I understand I must be an embarrassment, but maybe they don't, I just wish they could know my story, you know. I do understand why they would say that. You see, I, I wasn't always like this. I was, years ago, I was, at the top of my, of my game, I was an engineer. I had a beautiful, beautiful wife. We had just been married. I was doing well. I had this incredible job. Pastor, my wife was a dream come true. She was an angel. We were driving one time, and we got in an accident. I was driving. The car careened off the cliff. Pastor, she died. And I lived. It should have been me who died. I handed my life over to liquor and alcohol to rot. Within three months, I lost my job and everything went downhill. I lost my house. People stopped reaching out to me and I started living on the streets and it seemed to me that the only thing that could take away the pain and numb me until I lost consciousness was bottle after bottle after bottle of alcohol. I would awaken and wouldn't even know where I was. It was this way for years until one night It was raining. I didn't even want to come to church. One night it was raining. It was so much rain. And I walked into the stadium because it was the only place that was open. And I heard you preaching about Jesus. 
And I said, could it really be true that I could start over again? And so I came, I came down, I came down to the front. I said, I, I want to try again, I want to try again. I was so drunk, but I heard, I heard what you were saying. But then I felt terrible because I went back out and I got drunk again. So the next night, I wanted to tell God, this time I'm serious. That's why I came down the second time. But pastor, since then, it's been a few weeks. I haven't had not one drop of alcohol. And I'm not planning on going back. Pastor, that, that's my story. The people who had turned him away were listening to his story and were in tears. They came forward. They said, we, brother, we didn't know that this is what was going on. We're so sorry. We believe that the blood still moves. And we would like, we're in agreement with you for you, to be, for you to be baptized, for you to join the body of Christ. There was a reunion. There was hugging. There was crying. A few minutes later, he went under the water. I'm telling you that today, that brother is a preaching elder in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm telling you, there's power in the blood. And what is happening in your life? Today, that I don't know, that you know, that God knows, sister, brother, there's still power in the blood. Don't you want that blood to trickle down into those corners? Mm -hmm. And to heal and to restore. If that's you, just put your hand up. I do want that blood to trickle down. Come on and pray and play while I pray. Father, you've seen the hands of your children. You sent your son. Your only unique, one of a kind, monogeneos son. To dangle between heaven and earth. To offer us an opportunity we're not being forced anywhere. A chance, an option to live. Your children have voted today. They want to live. And they want to have the abundant life that only comes through Jesus. Thank you, God, for what you've done through Jesus. We praise you that there is an empty tomb that we serve a risen Savior. May each person leave this space with their head held high. We all in agreement would declare salvation belongs to our God. Receive this prayer that we're praying with thanksgiving in Jesus' matchless name, let all God's people say amen and amen. God bless you.